Hello podcast listeners, I would usually sit here and give you all a welcome, a brief introduction as to what we're going to be discussing today and a little welcome to Law Simplified and brush over some of the last podcasts as well as the guests and what was discussed. But no, not today, we're not going to be doing that. Instead, we're diving straight into our guest whose presence literally requires no introduction. I'm thrilled to announce our guest today. Barrister, Director of Advocacy and Co-Founder of DWS Advocacy, Mr. Sahar Farooq. Sahar, I'm going to grab you and bring you right in there. Thank you ever so much for joining us on this podcast today. Well, thank you for that introduction, Essen. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. The pleasure is all ours. Um, I must admit, Sahar, the podcast team and I at Law Simplified, we're trying to plot and put together a number of different ways as to how to get you onto a podcast when we first started this initiative. Um, and it seems like we struck gold and had some good fortune when um, you actually reached out. So I'm so content and so glad to have you here today, Sahar. So on behalf of everybody at Law Simplified, thank you ever so much. Um, um, so, Sahar, today you and I are going to be touching on some topics which will give the podcast listeners a brief insight into your life um, uh, just to name a few topics and other areas of discussion we'll be delving into your background um, your history your current work practice and, and some of the views that and advice that you can give to people like myself bar students law students on pupillage as well as other commercial awareness things and I'm hoping that's all right with yourself Sahar. Absolutely, that's why. Yeah, that's fantastic. However, Sahar, before we do get any into any of the topics mentioned, I believe that some congratulations are in order on the birth of your second child. So, again, on behalf of everybody at Law Simplified, a massive congratulations on the birth of your baby girl. Um, I hope fatherhood's treating you well. How has it been managing two sets of nappies? <laughs> very, very kind of you, and that's probably the most apt question you can ask. Um, <laughs> I think coming back to work last week yeah. uh, in some ways has been something of a relief. I've actually written um, articles before about what it's like mm-hmm. um, from the perspective of a, a new father. But happily, our daughter, um, her character thus far seems to be a lot more settled um, mm-hmm. and a lot quieter than our son was. So fingers crossed. Um, we're just we're just grateful that she's healthy and and we're happy to to welcome her into the world. To be honest, yeah, of course it's it's a fabulous moment for yourself and obviously a beautiful and very precious time for yourself as a family and um, everybody involved in your immediate family. I can imagine some of your motivation, um, if not the bulk of it, aside from your own personal growth and development, has actually come from your family. Is that right? I'm sorry. Say again. I can imagine some of the motivation, if not the bulk of it, comes from your family and a willingness to provide a better side for them as opposed to how things were when you were growing up as well. Is that Would that be something that you agree on? Yeah, I mean, up to a point, um, I'm mm-hmm. very fortunate, although um, my my father moved to England in um, 1968 from Pakistan. Mm-hmm. He worked incredibly hard um, mm-hmm. and got himself certified as a, a chartered accountant wow back then in the sort of early 70s um so myself and my my three siblings mm-hmm. we um by and large had what could only be described as a very happy and um, privileged upbringing mm-hmm. so i suppose if i'm honest if mm-hmm. i'm able to provide the same for my children then i will have done very well 
Yeah, of course. I mean, that's that's the intention, isn't it? When people migrate from um, countries like Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, they all want to come here and try and make a better path for the future generation. And I'm suppose you're well on your way to doing that as well, Sahar. So you touched a little bit on your own childhood then. So um, you mentioned your father um, was a chartered accountant. So what derived from for you to spark the ambition to go and study law. I know you uh, you studied in uh, the University of Bristol and further went on to do pupillage as well. But just take me back to the earlier years where you were at college or trying to figure out why and what you wanted to do at university. Yeah, um, I think for me, although it's it's something of a cliche, I probably knew very early on. So I'm, I'm one of those annoying people you come across who from mm -hmm. a very young age knows what they want to do mm -hmm. that wasn't because um I was particularly enamored with law mm -hmm. um from a young age it was more because my from a young age always seemed to be leading mm -hmm. that way by which I mean um I had some considerable skill or aptitude mm -hmm. from um that the younger in my younger years were public writing um, and also the art subjects so English um, and history in particular um, along with religious mm -hmm. studies things where you had to critically evaluate mm -hmm. sources um, or make inferences from the mm -hmm. written word and justify the standpoint you were taking mm -hmm. those were the sorts of things that interested me and that I excelled mm -hmm. at and when you combined those things together um, I, I've always I always cite reading match mm -hmm. reports mm -hmm. at school as being a moment where I realised at probably about six or seven years old that actually this is exactly what mm -hmm. I need to do. Um, that when you combine all of those things together, I came to the conclusion fairly quickly, and um, probably by the time I was um, in senior school, so around thirteen yeah. years old, before that it, it was the right way for me. To okay, go. so was that your first um, uh, first sort of swing at the bat of public speaking where you were reading these match reports and you thought you know what I've got a knack for this I'm quite comfortable in doing this yeah I mean I, I was I was and am fairly extrovert as mm -hmm. a character um, as a child you know I had no compunction about standing up mm -hmm. and speaking uh, I think I, I quite mm -hmm. enjoyed it um, and I was fortunate um, to go to uh, a school that even at those young young ages kind of between the ages of sort of probably eight and mm -hmm. 12, you're already doing um, things like debating. Fairly right, quickly. okay. So by the time I got to university, for example, um, I had been doing debating for wow. 10 years. And so it was uh, a skill set that by no means um, was polished or complete. I wouldn't even contend that that's mm -hmm. But simply... Um, I had some experience doing it and I had come to begin to understand what it is to try and formulate an argument on your feet, how to respond to interjections mm -hmm. um, and, and in general just give it a good go um, and stand my own ground, which you can probably understand yes. um, immediately links quite heavily to to the vocation that we're of course yeah so i suppose that takes you into pole's position really or in a very strong position when you were in bar school um i note that you um you obviously went to the university of bristol um and at, 
the bar course. I imagine it was the BBC back when you were doing it. Is that correct? And you actually uh, ranked fourth in your year. So I think that's a reflection of something that you're saying there. And it's definitely added value having started from a, such a young age debating and mooting so and so on and so forth. So it's definitely something if I could have done uh, earlier, I would have gotten into it. But it seems like it's it's paid um it paid dividends for yourself and now you enjoy enjoying the fruits of your labor. So <laughs> I mean I wish uh, I would have had that initiative at a very young age, but I suppose it came natural to you, didn't it? initiative is is one aspect of mm -hmm. it as i say um a, a lot of it is is my own good fortune um and the sacrifices of my parents to send me to the type of school where those things were um were identified and sort of pursued yeah. with us i think when i got to university mm -hmm. at bristol i remember in my mm -hmm. first year i was in the final of the first year moving competition which was uh, a decent mm -hmm. achievement but I was also simultaneously in the final of the debating competition, um, which was for the entire faculty. It wasn't limited um, to that first year. And I remember thinking at, at that point, when I was sort of going against third year law students who at that moment in time seemed to be so mm -hmm. senior and impossible to touch, it was that kind of moment of realizing that actually it's about who presents their argument yeah. the best, um, who who is able to answer the questions and withstand mm -hmm. scrutiny and present overall in a manner which is convincing. It doesn't matter about um, age mm -hmm. or standing or social status, mm -hmm. any of those things. But it was really important. And then, yeah, moving on um, yeah. from Bristol, um, although staying within the city, I went um, across town to the University okay. of West England and did uh, the BBC, yeah. you're right, yeah. as it then um, although I think it's now coming back to three letters, it's now called the BBS. Yeah, I think it's changed again from the BPTC. I've been seeing it on um, LinkedIn quite a lot. I think they've uh, changed it back to the three words. So you did, um, you, you undertook the BBC uh, at the University of West England. How was that for you? Yeah, that, um, honestly, that remains one of the best mm -hmm. years of my life. Um, for me, it was kind of gold dust after a year of, or three years rather of, of academic study or the academic mm -hmm. study of law to proceed to a course that was probably I think at the time about 60 or 70 percent assessed on your mm -hmm. oral advocacy um, that for me was absolutely perfect because it spoke to um, it certainly spoke to my mm -hmm. strengths and it was something that I really really enjoyed because again you know having spent years and years already working on that skill it came naturally to streamline that into um, the more sort of barristerial approach yeah, and it, 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 of course alongside yeah. that uh, alongside throughout yeah. university i continued mooting as well um at an intervarsity level so it was it, it was a kind of natural Escalation. Yeah, and you, you, you actually did receive a number of um, awards and scholarships, didn't you, Sahar, as well? Um, uh, you were called to the bar by Grayson, I believe, and 
it must have been a challenge to juggle um, things back then in all, all in one play. I know now we've got um, the opportunity to spread the course out of two years and it just allows a little bit more flexibility, uh, flexibility in the approach to the bar course and managing your own personal commitments. But is that something you um, sort of wanted to move away from and just get the bar course done and get on your feet and go into practice? Or what was that decision for um, actually doing it all within one year or was the option even available back then? Um, well, there's a, there's a couple of things there. Just dealing with that, yeah. that last thing very quickly. Um, the part-time course okay. was available um, back then, um, in sort of 2009. Mm. So people oh, were right, doing okay. it. It wasn't something that late I ever mm. contemplated because um, I, I was keen to simply get it done as yeah. quickly as possible. But on, on the scholarships and in general, it's a point that I've made online um, a lot. And my academic journey through the University of Bristol was such that I focused so much on the extracurricular things because I knew from day one at university certainly that I was targeting yeah. the bar and I understood within about two or three weeks looking at the statistics and talking to third-year students who were applying or had mm -hmm. pupils already I understood very quickly how difficult it was so I focused on extracurricular mm -hmm. things, mooting, yeah. yeah. pro bono, um, law journals, yeah legal magazines, social committees, yeah. all of those things. And um, at the end of my second year, my grades mm -hmm. weren't great. So at the start of my third year, I was told it's impossible for you to get wow. the two one. So you need to focus on getting mm -hmm. two two, a really mm -hmm. strong two two. Because by then everyone in the faculty knew that I was sort of fixated mm -hmm. with the bar. Um, and they said, you know, consolidate mm -hmm. that two two and then see okay. where you can go. Um, from there. and in that final year I did even more extracurricular yeah. things uh, and I always remember sort of April May 2009 as being up there with just about the most difficult month of my whole life because I really really crammed I was doing sort of 18 19 wow. hour days um, to, to get through the exams and then mm -hmm. on results day yeah. I got a 2-1 so I, I went to go and speak to the, um, I can't remember honestly what his, his position was, but yeah. essentially the dean of the faculty. And, yeah, you, you've mm -hmm. got a 2-1. Um, and it now exists, the way in which you've done it now exists as yeah. a precedent. And he showed me in that sort of mm -hmm. spreadsheet. This now exists as a way for somebody to get a 2-1 yeah. overall. We would never encourage anybody to mm -hmm. do it this way but you have done it and you've done it on your own terms. So congratulations. And that is the reason, linking it back yeah. to your question, that's the reason why um, I didn't actually apply for any okay. scholarships for oh. the bar course, which is one of my, one of my okay. biggest regrets. I probably mm. should have done, but I thought I'm never going to get one because my second year mm. grades aren't good enough. Um, it's probably just a waste mm -hmm. of time. Um, what I subsequently went on, to do which you're probably referring to is get um, other scholarships yeah. from my in um, mm -hmm. at other points uh, which includes you know a scholarship pupillage and um, I won my in's mooting mm -hmm. competition which which was also something that came with um, a scholarship and I also um, traveled America with um, some other peers and Lord Justice Coulson yeah. as he now is um, on a moot tour so it, it was um, 
it was a really kind of interesting period mm. in my life. But the, the thing, the reason why I mentioned that is students ask me so often about yeah. scholarships and all of that. And I, I try and tell them that, you know, whilst it's clear that ne- the way in which I did it is not necessarily mm. the answer, people do often tell you along the way it can't be done. If I had just accepted that a 2-2 was yeah. all I could manage, um, then I probably wouldn't have had the motivation which I did which was to kind of just force myself to really, really get the best possible yeah. grades I could whilst developing my yeah. profile and juggling all of the things yeah. that you're talking about. Um, so when I when I came to mm-hmm. the bar course, that was a relief because it was one straight mm-hmm. flat year focused on the things that mm-hmm. I absolutely loved, which was oral, um, mm-hmm. oral assessments mm-hmm. and advocacy. Um, and also I met a great bunch of people. Um, my, my cohort was largely... Um, made up of people from um, sort of Commonwealth or former mm-hmm. Commonwealth yeah. jurisdictions, Malaysia, yeah. Pakistan, mm-hmm. uh, Mauritius. These are all countries that you know, I've subsequently had the opportunity to either yeah. um, work in or work with those people. Some of some of the people that I studied with. Yeah, so I suppose the networking aspect comes in at a very young age, doesn't it? The moment you start networking yourself and putting yourself out there, um, the only 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 things that can come from that are good fortune and probably things that are going to benefit you in the future but um, just slightly moving away now Sahar from your um, your education and I want to just delve quickly into your working life from um, from the very start of pupillage and following pupillage as well I, I noted that there was some change in your um, in your area that you wanted to specialize in because I, I read somewhere correct me if I'm wrong that you initially had somewhat of a passion for crime and then you fixed over to the commercial side of it yeah um that that's mm-hmm. probably true and i think you can you yeah. can track that through my process just just prior to pupil so i i thought crime was exactly mm-hmm. what i wanted to do um, crime and possibly human rights so th- those are the sorts of pupils that i was mm-hmm. targeting and um the year before pupillage, I started working for mm-hmm. Serco and I was prosecuting for them in the magistrate's right. court um, for, for breach of community mm-hmm. orders, which was fan- a fantastic um, opportunity to gain advocacy yeah. experience. But I then also went and um, did an internship in Malaysia. Right. And during that internship, I was um, working with an individual who at that point was chairman of the Malaysian Human Rights Bar mm-hmm. Association. But he was in a law firm that did mm-hmm. a lot more than that. And um, I had the opportunity whilst I was there to also work on commercial mm-hmm. matters. Um, so I was doing criminal matters, human rights matters, commercial right. matters. And I thought this is actually mm-hmm. quite interesting as well. Um, but I'd, I'd landed pupillage yeah. by then. So I did um, a fantastic pupillage at um, a very good yeah. criminal set. Uh, or two or four okay. buildings, um, Atkinson, Bevan, Chambers, okay. and they um, they are a criminal set that um, is sort of heavily leaning towards prosecution mm-hmm. work. Um, and I absolutely loved it because um, criminal barristers, um, juniors um, in particular, by comparison to their peers, spend a lot mm-hmm. more time in court than... Um, yeah, commercial counterparts. So I had again um, picking up sort of the earlier theme of exposure to uh, mm-hmm. being on my feet. I had an opportunity through mm-hmm. that process to 
really experience and the sort of cut and thrust of, of junior criminal practice. So it was a lot of fun. Um, but when I yeah. finished pupillage, I got married. I got married the day after. <laughs> wow, looks like things worked in your favour there, didn't they, sir? <laughs> well, I mean, it was it was um, it was by design rather than um, by um, you know, just coincidence. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. After that, um, I began looking at you know sort of how I was going to build a foundation for my yeah. my career sort of platform yeah. to go from. And it's no secret, it's very well documented that the criminal bar, um, especially mm. at the junior end, is not the yeah. place to be. Um, and I looked at that and I didn't have the the wherewithal or the resolve, mm-hmm. I think, to um, kind of forge a, a criminal practice. So I began looking at how mm-hmm. I could diverse fairly quickly. Okay, so then that led you into your commercial side of it and where you are right now, I guess the rest is history. But um, what I want to just highlight quickly, Saha, is that um, you are actually uh, commended and not only just commended, you were given an award for some of the achievements that you've actually managed to reach in um, in your position um, at the British Muslim Awards. I believe that was in 2020, right? So what, just in the gap window that we had before COVID, you managed to secure such a big award. Um, how was that? How was that as a feeling and a, as an award and accomplishment for yourself? Um, yeah, it was it was quite mm-hmm. extraordinary. Um, completely out of mm-hmm. out of the blue. Um, to this day, I don't know um, who nominated me. I think you have to receive a certain number of nominations. So I have absolutely no idea right. who nominated me. Or many people. Um, but yeah, it was it was just an extraordinary accolade because when you look at some of the people who were nominated um, on that on that shortlist yeah. in particular, people people like um, Neelam Neelam yeah. has been um, been on your yeah. podcast already. It was just an honour to be kind of shortlisted alongside mm-hmm. them. Um, to have actually won the award um, was was really it defies defies description it was a, a huge honor um unfortunately i was um in the midst of um a negotiation that that afternoon oh. in london so i couldn't i couldn't go um and it was collected by some of um some of my colleagues in um our manchester oh. office including um oh, yeah, Sarah, yeah yeah you know as well yeah um but yeah the the, the, the accolade itself was was a tremendous honor um and Really, it was a good, mm-hmm. a good moment and platform to start talking about diversity and inclusion, which is something yeah. I'm quite passionate about and something I didn't Yeah, I mean, that's today. that's a massive topic and we will come to that today. So I, I did see the picture of you in the traditional, um, it looks like a Shirvani from what I can see. And I think that I thought when I saw that, I thought that's what he's wore to the awards and that looks so dapper and it just uh, gives you right your roots, doesn't it? It puts you right there in the thick of it as a British Muslim who's absolutely smashing at the moment in this sector. So I'd um, a very dapper approach to... Um, Something that I thought was a uh, outfit for the night. Yeah, thanks. It was. Yeah, it wasn't. It, as I say, it wasn't for the night. That photo is actually um, at DWF when you're um, promoted to um, partnership uh, level or directorship right, level. Right. You're invited to participate in 
a photo shoot um, and they have it on screens um, across their offices wow. globally. And the idea is to show some aspect of your personality or something that's mm-hmm. important to you. And my, my heritage and my culture is incredibly important to me. So I chose just to wear a Shivani for that photo. Yeah, I mean, it, it looks um, it tops, it looks top class. That it looks uh, very dapper, Saha. So you've definitely got um, uh, you've got me on side there. I'll definitely, well, having words with your stylist, whether it be your missus or somebody else, um, uh, definitely props to them. But I suppose it doesn't always have um, a positive sides, does it, Saha? It's not always as um, plain sailing as people think it is. Um, the position you've got to now, I suppose there must have been some difficulties in getting to where you are now. Did you face any adversity um, as a result of your um, ethnic minority group or anything like that? That's a that's a very very long question. I think which um, let's get, let's let's get a nutshell. Let's give us a little nutshell, a little insight if you have or anything that you can highlight from uh, your career thus far. My my feeling is I'll give you I'll give you an illustration. It's how much things yeah. have changed. Um, I was doing a mini pupillage, which a lot of your listeners are yeah. familiar with, um, and it was at um, a very um, a very sort of top London mm-hmm. set of chambers. And I was introduced to um, a silk who I was going to be shadowing for most mm-hmm. of that week, um, and this individual had been at the bar for. Uh, 50 okay. years um been in silk for um several decades by mm-hmm. that point as well um and when i was introduced to him he didn't say anything he was sort of sat sat behind his desk yeah. writing away um so i just began introducing mm-hmm. myself uh, and he he then looked he looked at me sort of surprised as i was speaking and he said your english is fantastic <laughs> how long have you been here Wow. Um, to which I said, uh, I was I was mm-hmm. born here. Said, ah, so your parents came on a banana wow. boat. Okay. Um, and I, you know, in that sort of moment when you're doing a mini pupillage, whatever you feel about mm-hmm. what's being said is kind of an inclination. And this is, you know, sort of 10, 12 years ago now. So yeah. in the current climate, I suspect it would be very yeah. different. But in that, in that moment, you just internalize all of it, kind of laugh it off. Um, and you make sure that you get done what you are there to do, which essentially is to network as mm-hmm. well as you can across chambers to get some experience of seeing things in court um, and to not rock the boat by going to either head of chambers or somebody else and saying, by the way, I feel like somebody just said something yeah. quite racist to me. Um, having said that, you know, those experiences are few and far mm-hmm. between um, across my professional mm-hmm. journey I feel like because I w- when I started senior mm-hmm. school 9-11 happened on the second okay. week I feel like it was a very big part of my adolescent and um, formative mm-hmm. years um, by and large through university yeah. and bar school I don't think I really experienced mm-hmm. much of it um, particularly the bar school was so diverse and then through pupillage applications, there was more of an inclination amongst my friends mm-hmm. and family to conclude it, when I didn't quite make it on my first year mm-hmm. of applying, I was reserved a few sets mm-hmm. and I didn't get okay. it. They were inclined to say to me, yeah, well, it's because right. you're brown or it's because yeah. you're Muslim 
Um, and you're trying to break into one of the most traditional um, white male-dominated yeah. professions there is. It's never going to happen. Of course. And I, I was pissed yeah. off by that because I thought that, that was people hiding behind um, my sort of ethnicity or not willing to sort of accept that it could be mm -hmm. a meritocracy, which I yeah, firmly believe it is. Um, and a number of things happened to me in the in the intervening year that were mm. very important yeah. to my development. Some of those things I've touched upon already. So I've not seen um, personally, I think it really impacted me. Um, but I come from, as I've said from the outset, I, I come from a background which has been yeah. quite privileged because of the sacrifices yeah. of my parents. So it means I've been afforded an education and possibly mm. a network which people don't necessarily have. I and mean, it's not to say that, like some people, you know, I, I wasn't sort of thrown into the bar. My, there was no lawyers in my family yeah. or anything like that. But I had a kind of exposure to these things um, through a private education, which made some of it less mm -hmm. alien to me. I think as far as my career goes, what I've then seen again is um, it's not really been yeah. an issue, but there are moments when you are acutely aware that you are the only um, minority individual yeah, in a course. room um, and that does yeah. chime with you what's interesting now is that because of the extensive work I do in mm -hmm. Pakistan with uh, clients mm -hmm. I've taken several um, members of the firm uh, out there to work with clients and when it's um, a white male for yeah. example at the end of the day when we're sort of mm -hmm. debriefing in the in the hotel over mm -hmm. uh, dinner they'll say to me oh it's really interesting i've never been um the only white mm -hmm. person in a room i've never been yeah. a minority and you sort of live it through their eyes and you think yeah that's, that's yeah, how i course, grew up of course but what that tells you fundamentally hassan is that there is still a need for change that um it's still it's still mm -hmm. a thing Obviously, in the last few months, it's been a very, very yeah, loud yeah. thing. And events like um, what happened yeah. with George Floyd um, stoke the international consciousness and conscience into a uh, kind mm -hmm. of furore, which is very yeah. important, but doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. last. What we need is for that dialogue mm -hmm. to persist and for change to yeah. be possible. It's something that would be incremental yeah. and sustained not simply kind of mm. knee-jerk to really horrific violent yeah. instances which uh, people are able to condemn yeah. very quickly but also yeah, forget so to answer your question i think throughout my mm -hmm. developmental years it was something mm -hmm. of an issue and i've got examples of that yeah. throughout it in my career it's been something that i'm acutely yeah. aware of overall i personally don't think it has mm -hmm. held me back but I know plenty of other people who feel. Yeah, I mean, that. I suppose you have to be resilient in your in, in your determination to succeed, no matter what hurdles come in your way. You just have to jump over them and say, "Okay, well, this is a problem that I've been dealing with, but we're not going to dwell on it too much. We're going to brush it to the side, brush ourselves off, get back on your feet, literally, and try and pursue your goal." I mean, that's what nearly everyone in the bar course tries to do, whether they come from a ethnic minority group or anybody else i mean i had a number of international students on my course as well so i can understand when you're 
traveling from a country like Bangladesh, there's a lot of Bangladeshi students, even in my chambers at university. And um, some of them were made to feel um, belittled because of the accent. And it's not nice to see sometimes, but I suppose that's part and parcel of the feel that we endeavor to succeed in. We have to try and break these barriers, don't we, Saha? And I think you're one of the examples of people that have shown resilience and determination to get to where you are. And um, you've done that as well through networking. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't aware that you'd taken um, partners and um, people out to Pakistan. I'm sure that was a very interesting journey as well for them to see, especially being out in Pakistan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of, some of um, my more yeah. senior colleagues have also worked yeah. in Pakistan for a number of years. For them, it's a lesser revelation, but for some of yeah. the junior lawyers, my pupil in particular, he's been out to Pakistan. Oh, fabulous. Um, and he certainly found it very interesting. Oh. Um, very clear yeah. them, I think, um, but not necessarily something that um, if I find a, a polite way to put it, it's not necessarily managed to process <laughs> the food as much. Oh, as I hope you didn't get ill out there. <laughs> but, yeah, um, but you know, it's it's been great, and I think what you're talking about, though, what you're touching on there, is more about rejection yeah. generally. That's not that's not unique to me. That's um, that's the life of um, anyone going into um, a profession that's over-described. Yes. The bar is something of a kind of extreme example because um it's just so so much of a bottleneck at entry level um there's not enough pupillages to um applicants Mm -hmm. and you have thousands of people Mm -hmm. applying with only you know a couple of hundred spots available so you're obviously going to get um people that are heartbroken and people have to understand that that rejection is just part and part of, of that course. process i didn't really experience rejection i don't think um in a kind of really serious meaningful mm-hmm. way until i was um about 18 and i was applying for mm-hmm. university when i didn't get into oxbridge which all of my teachers mm-hmm. thought i would uh, it was kind of devastating for me um and it was something that took me a long time mm-hmm. to get over in fact i didn't get over that until i won my ins mooting competition against people who were um, by and large from yeah. Oxford and Cambridge and I thought well actually that doesn't make that mm. much difference it's about who's best on their feet and who's got yeah. the best argument of course and but rejection is something that you can yeah. avoid and if you fear mm. it um, you'll never you'll never be able to succeed because judges reject your arguments clients reject your arguments colleagues opponents of course are there to yes. reject your arguments so if you have any notion about going yeah. to the bar and you're reticent or circumspect mm-hmm. about being mm-hmm. rejected in mm-hmm. any way, then it's probably yeah. not for you. You have to understand that it's part yeah. and parcel of it and of course. to embrace it and just make it a companion because it's not going yeah. away and you have to work with it and push yeah. through it. Um, and there are times when you are rejected and it's important to just learn of lessons. Course, from of it. course, I think... Um... That's very sound advice there, Sahar, uh, for everybody who's listening, whatever stage you're at, if you're in the undergraduate or the first few years of um, the, the bar school or the first year of bar school. That's very informed, sound advice from Sahar, who's um, got an abundance of experience. Now, Sahar, I want to touch on... Abundance of yeah, 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 of course, abundance of rejection. I mean, you, I think you said to me, Sahar, when I first 
I started using LinkedIn for the first time and I was very new to it all. And um, as you can imagine, you're not a very uh, a person that hides well on LinkedIn. So I managed to uh, connect with you quite early on. And I think one of the first things that you said to me was that rejection will be your companion on this journey, no matter what stage you get to. And um, that's one of the things I remember. And when you just mentioned it, then it just highlighted that thought in uh, a little memory bank of mine. But um, as we are now talking about LinkedIn and social media, um, what are your views on effective use of social media and how people like myself can use it to their advantage in going forward and trying to do well, not only just secure a pupilage, but just to try and do well and put themselves out there? I know that's a long-winded question, Sahar, but I'm sure you'll have no problem dissecting it. Well, the first thing I, I would say is that it's a fantastic mm -hmm. platform. Um, I mean... I wish it had been around when I was a student because um, the only recourse we really had was to try and doorstop barristers outside yeah. court, which was effective. Oh. But obviously, yeah. it required um, to kind of be mm -hmm. out and about to, mm -hmm. to achieve that. It's a fantastic mm -hmm. platform. It is um, supposed to be, by and large, a professional platform, although I think within that there is scope for a sensible amount of humanity and yeah. humour, which sometimes people yeah. get. Um, in terms mm -hmm. of its use, full, full disclaimer, I've never had any kind of social media mm -hmm. training or anything mm -hmm. like that. Um, I, I didn't really mm -hmm. engage with it when I was at the independent mm -hmm. bar. When I became an employed yeah. barrister, I gradually began kind of using it as a tool, partly to aid um, recruitment of other junior barristers or advocates, but also mm -hmm. um, as a way of just trying to engage with the wider profession and subsequently as a kind of business development or BD yeah. tool. Um, and what I have found resonates most with people um, is content which is observational. It's a bit like yeah. comedy, I suppose. Observational comedy works because it's yeah. relatable. Definitely. And if I post uh, professional articles, which um, I do on occasion about, you know, discrete point um, arising from mm -hmm. case law, or, um, for example, in the immediate aftermath yeah. of COVID, um, I published an article about the impact um, of um, yeah. COVID on um, force majeure mm -hmm. clauses. Um, and, you know, those types of things are interesting to um, a narrow group yeah. of people, fairly mm -hmm. obvious reasons. But if I post um, on things that sort of touch upon rejection or on my personal journey, yeah. my family yeah. life, um, things that humanize yeah. me to the wider yeah. audience, then it will inevitably get more mm -hmm. engagement. And within that, as you, you will know, I've spent a great deal of my, my time, um, my personal mm -hmm. time really, um, in, in trying to assist yeah. and help people as many yeah. as I can who are applying mm -hmm. for pupillage. And I do that, um, which is one of the, the sort of primary reasons now mm -hmm. I use LinkedIn, um, because I found it to be an incredibly daunting yeah. process that wasn't really very mm -hmm. user-friendly. It wasn't mm -hmm. accessible. Um, it's part of the reason why the pupillage scheme that um, mm -hmm. we've set up is, is mm -hmm. very different. Um, but it is a great platform um, to reach hundreds, if not thousands, of aspiring lawyers, generally, yeah. solicitors, yes, barristers. Definitely. Um, and just 
give them some degree of insight, mm -hmm. some hope, some mm -hmm. encouragement. There are plenty of others who do it, people who do mm -hmm. it much better than me, people like uh, Chris Dore and yeah. Mary Pryor, both of them silks. Um, these people, um, you know, really dedicate a great deal of their mm -hmm. time to it as well. Um, but I just think it's it's important to try and give mm -hmm. back. Definitely. So that's that's kind of how I how I use the platform. It has been very successful for generating business. Mm -hmm. I have to say, there's no mm -hmm. doubt about that. Um, I haven't gone about soliciting in a kind of mm -hmm. aggressive way. What happens is that by humanizing mm -hmm. myself, by engaging mm -hmm. with people, almost organically um, by osmosis, people are drawn mm -hmm. to you. They engage you in conversation, and certainly in lockdown, that's then progressed into Zoom yeah. conversations and then subsequent yeah. disruptions. So it really is about kind of selling yourself, but not in a, a vulgar, mm -hmm. obvious way, um, but in a way that is couched fundamentally in, in humanity. That's how you'll interact yeah. with people. You win relationships with people mm -hmm. first, and then you win work. Um, and inspiring and engaging the next generation of lawyers is something that's just important mm -hmm. to do anyway. I suppose there's a personal touch to some of your posts as well, isn't there, Sahar? You... Um... You, I'm sure you posted, um, I think, not so long ago on the birth of um, your second child, a wonderful picture of you um, all dressed in white as well as, as the child was dressed in white as well, which I thought was a very personal and delicate moment to put out there on LinkedIn. But I suppose it shows people that you're not just um, Sahar the barrister, Sahar the co-founder. You're Sahar who's a dad as well and somebody um, who people can relate to as well. So I suppose it adds to the overall um little aura that you give off as um yeah you're you're a cool guy an approachable guy but yeah you've also um smashed it and broke these glass ceilings as well as you're playing this father figure to um two wonderful children so uh, it's definitely admirable um from my point of view saha and i think um you've got a you've got the you've got the tactics of how to use linkedin um if i can call them that and it's something that i should definitely as well as other people take a leaf out of your book but um a a, a more very, yeah. very kind just specifically yeah. on the tip something that um, yeah. i have learned is i'm not really sure about hashtags and tagging people and stuff although i, mm. I try to do that from mm. time to time one thing i've noticed is that the way the algorithm on yeah. linkedin works um the more um engagement you get in the first hour yes. of a post the more likely it is to sort yeah. of explode and if somebody comments on your post within yeah. the first hour and you respond, it increases the way the well, algorithm yeah. pushes it out. Um, so it is it is useful to to try and engage. And I, I generally try to put my posts up at sort of seven thirty in the morning or eight o'clock, so I have an hour or so to engage mm -hmm. with them before my day mm -hmm. really gets going, um, and uh, I can then. You know, kind of yeah. focus on that. Although sometimes the days is going from very early in the morning if I'm um, yeah. working with clients instead of GMT. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's that's a top tip um, for everybody who's listening. Really, um, I wasn't aware of the hashtag thing, and I'm glad you raised that. So, uh, I mean, uh, some people think, and I'm guilty as part of one of them to um, put as many hashtags as as possible below your little post, and you think that it's going to get engagement, it's going to get people interacting, but um, I suppose that's very sound advice again from Sahar, who's um, absolutely smashing it on LinkedIn as well. But um, I wanted to touch on a bit of more of a somber uh, topic now, Sahar. Um, 
it was um, a few a few months ago, I think, just after Ramzan, well, immediately after Ramadan, um, the the death and the murder of um, Aya Hakim from um, Blackburn, I believe she was from, and you actually started a little petition there, didn't you, Sahar? And what was what was the reason behind that petition? If you just want to um, spend a couple of minutes just telling why you decided to embark on the petition and what your goal was. Yeah. Um, I mean, at, at mm-hmm. the outset, um, I'll tell you now what I said um, at the time, which is, of course, it's it's a horrific tragedy. Mm-hmm. The loss of the loss of any life is um, is upsetting yeah. and sad, but this one was particularly tragic given um, yeah. Maya's age. She was an aspiring solicitor um, who was caught in um, some kind of um, some kind of Mm-hmm. criminality that resulted mm-hmm. in her death um, by mm-hmm. shooting and when I read her story um, as is often the way I think I was just sort of reading yeah. BBC news before I went and then mm-hmm. I couldn't sleep because you know at, at the time my wife was sort of seven months pregnant yeah. with a daughter um, and it really it really hit me in a way that I'm Probably ashamed to say it, it may not have done yeah. otherwise. Um, in contemplation of you know having a daughter yeah. of my own, and imagining what her father and and parents mm-hmm. would be going through. And when I read it, um, I noticed that you know the parents had said it was her dream mm-hmm. to be a solicitor. So as I lay there, I thought there's got to be something that can be done to commemorate this mm-hmm. tragedy. And it seemed to me that a way to do that, a very, very small um, and insignificant, but still um, relevant way to mark that tragedy would be to have her added to the role mm-hmm. of solicitors posthumously. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's what I, I set about to do. And, uh, you know, the, the LinkedIn community and the legal press took it on board um, in a way which um, exceeded my own expectations, mm-hmm. which was really heartening yeah. to see again that humanity mm-hmm. um, and and willingness um, from from people to participate. In yeah, so like I think that. there was um, over over eighteen hundred reactions onto that post, and um, as many people actually joined the the petition. Um, it's a, it's a shame that the um, SRA couldn't obviously um, follow through, but no doubt that the the gesture is is one that is is, is very admirable, and I think it's um, quite a noble act from you there, Sahara. Uh, it's a shame that you didn't get the um, desired outcome, but um, none. The... Well, well, I think um, it might be slightly slightly unfair on the SRA to say mm-hmm. that um, for two reasons. Mm-hmm. Firstly. Um, in my own naivety of the yeah. situation, which is probably referring yeah. to, it's not actually possible to posthumously add somebody oh, to the role of course, yeah. Because if I, if I subsequently come to mm-hmm. understand it, because that's regular yeah. statute, um, it would require um, an act of parliament to amend that, which is obviously a separate type of petition, which I didn't yeah. launch. It's a... mm-hmm. The second thing is that the SRA were very quick to engage with mm-hmm. me directly. Um, and I've been in direct, still am in direct uh, conversation yeah. about it with the president mm-hmm. of the Royal Society, mm-hmm. Simon Davis. And 
there are certain things that are afoot at the moment between um, mm-hmm. myself, um, Aya's okay. family through their representative uh, and the Law Society. I think it would be remiss of me at, at this point because they're still working out the details to go of course. into of course. exactly. Yeah, of course. But I wanted to say the SRA has been um, engaged in this from the outset and once they recognised, um, or rather once I recognised what I was seeking to do mm-hmm. wasn't possible, graduated that thinking mm-hmm. beyond that. They've been very keen to do something which, um, as I, I've said before, sort of marks this this tragedy in, in an appropriate yeah. way. So there are still things afoot and it won't be left um, mm-hmm. undone. Okay, unsafe. okay. Um, I mean, I wasn't aware of that, Sahana. I think I still think that's a wonderful gesture. Yeah, no, I'm glad that's come to light, and um, you're able to share that. I'm sure many people will uh, will join me in um, uh, in in paying tribute to um, Aya Hakim as well, who was a university uh, student at Salford, um, which is just on the outskirts of Manchester. So. uh, A very a very somber topic, but uh, nonetheless one that needed discussing. Okay, so now, Sahar, I just want to touch on a few more topics. Um, I am conscious of the time, and um, us being us, I think we're just engaged in this chatty conversation. We've gone off and uh, um, had a wonderful chinwag. But now I want to get into some of the work that you've been doing, Sahar, um, at DWF. Um, I know you're involved in a lot of international work and arbitration, but on a day-to-day basis, what is it like being... Uh, Sahar Faruqi at work uh, or in in a in a uh, in a full weekday. Uh, what, what goes on in your life? Yeah, I mean the the role is inevitably varied because it's um, it, it's mm. client led uh, as, as most instructions yeah. are. But DWF advocacy mm-hmm. um, is a very interesting vehicle and, and project. As as far as I'm aware, although there are variations mm-hmm. on it. We're probably one of, if not the only model out there that does mm-hmm. what we do. So my day-to-day is a combination of um, the management of that business together with my mm-hmm. own practice. Um, pausing there for a moment to discuss what the, mm-hmm. the business is, uh, it's most easily understood as okay. chambers. The difference is that we have um, barristers, but we also have Mm -hmm. advocate. Advocates are individuals who are post BPTC, Mm -hmm. uh, but pre-pupilage. And many of your listeners will be familiar with other organizations um, where it's possible to um, do freelance work. Our advocates are employed. Okay. So they're salaried. They have the opportunity to do um, a whole range of work across all of our practice Mm -hmm. areas including areas where rights of audience don't apply. So, for example, before employment tribunals where you don't yeah. need rights of audience or in the context of international arbitration where you don't need rights yeah. of audience either. So there is um, possibility for them to do all sorts of interesting mm. varied work, which isn't necessarily available mm. elsewhere. We're also clerked centrally um, by four clerks who are based in Liverpool yeah. and Manchester. We use the same software to manage everybody's diaries that mm-hmm. Chambers do. Um, and all of our barristers and advocates have busy practices um, in the various areas that mm-hmm. they're involved in mm-hmm. and specialise in. 
Um, and the the difference, I suppose, to Chambers is that we're all employed and we are part of, um, we're a subsidiary company of a much larger legal entity, which is um, an international player in the legal services. Yeah, I, I, I know you said that you've, um, yourself, you've worked in places like Malaysia, Pakistan, um, Singapore. Um, do any of your, um, you know, your advocates and your pupils, I know you said you took a, a pupil out to um, Pakistan, but um, is that going to change? I know I'm dipping into a different subject now, but post-Brexit, uh, what are going to be the implications of that and on your practice in these other countries, Sahar? Well, I, I, I don't really see Brexit having um, a massive mm-hmm. impact on um, international arbitration, um, certainly when it comes to things like um, enforceability mm-hmm. um, awards in, in the domestic mm-hmm. courts. I don't see that mm-hmm. being an issue. Um, it's more likely that COVID is going to have an impact because it has had an immediate okay. impact in a way that Bre- mm-hmm. Brexit hasn't. So, you know, several advocates in the past have been out to Malaysia, to mm-hmm. Singapore, mm-hmm. to Pakistan, to Dubai um, with me or independently to work with mm-hmm. my clients. Um, and obviously mm-hmm. since COVID, they haven't been able yeah, to go out there. In the same way that the whole world has mm-hmm. adapted, it's relatively straightforward to hold meetings um, mm-hmm. by Zoom, to hold mm-hmm. conferences. Um, I mean, in, in, in cases that are multi-jurisdictional, yeah fairly common within international arbitration, as you mm-hmm. know, anyway, to hold any kind of case mm-hmm. management um, mm-hmm. hearing virtually yeah. anyway. Because if you have parties that are in Singapore, Paris, London, and yeah. Chicago, you're going to make sure you do it virtually until, until yeah. you can't. So you avoid it until the final hearing. I think the difference mm-hmm. now, the impact mm-hmm. of COVID, is that a lot of uh, arbitration final hearings are now being mm-hmm. conducted virtually mm-hmm. as well. And that is a change because you've had a situation where parties have been, as I say, conducting case management hearings mm-hmm. and all the rest of it virtually, but they've always understood we're going to get together for the final hearing mm-hmm. in Singapore mm-hmm. or Hong Kong or London, yeah. wherever it is. And that's not been possible. And people have been doing yeah. it virtually with mm-hmm. the best. It has it has limitations. I have colleagues who really don't like it and feel that not being in a room when you're cross-examining is difficult. Very yeah, difficult. People rely on body language, um, which oddly you can see through a screen, but you can't feel. Um, it, it, it's a different experience, and I can understand that yeah. frustration, but needs must and when you balance that against the prospect of saying all right well do we just not resolve this dispute until the situation around mm-hmm. the COVID is clear um, then it all kind of falls into place and the parties themselves recognize that whatever is lost mm-hmm. in translation with this virtual mm-hmm. approach we have to yeah. crack on the ship. so mm-hmm. i think that's that kind of in a way kind of begun answering yeah. the second part of your question to, to touch yeah. on it again um, the role across a week, across a month, across a year, it involves a balancing between mm-hmm. those things on 
management yeah. of the business and the day yeah. practice. And within that as well, I have of course a responsibility for um, things like business mm-hmm. development. So mm-hmm. pipeline, making sure that we have the like the right client mm-hmm. relationships that we're developing mm-hmm. work um, opportunities mm-hmm. with those clients, mm-hmm. uh, making sure that um, the the business has a strong sustainable future, which is which is really really quite cool to be honest. Um, it's not something I ever thought about when I um, set about uh, a career at the bar, but it's kind of where I'm yeah. It seems it seems like you're steering the ship's heart and you're balancing many plates at one time as well as focusing on um, the pupils. Um, I know your current pupil. Um, uh, Lyle Chase, uh, I believe he's called, um, is um, currently undertaking. What, what stage of his pupilage is, is he up to at the moment? Yeah, so Lyle is in his okay. second six. He will, as it's current as it currently stands, he will finish um, in, okay. in December. He had a very a very interesting time, as most most mm-hmm. other pupils um, during this period have. So he started his first six in the kind yeah. of normal way. Um, and then we had arranged an opportunity for mm-hmm. him to do a secondment with um, an external chambers, mm-hmm. external commercial mm-hmm. set in London, um, which he did for a couple of weeks. And then he went on to do his mandatory mm-hmm. training at the Inns of yeah. Court. And as soon as that began, really, COVID kind mm-hmm. of took off. So I've not physically oh, seen okay. him since so I think possibly kind of February oh. time. Um, of course, you know, we're, we're in touch yeah. every day, uh, and that's that's been a challenge mm-hmm. to be honest. Um, he, he's risen to it commendably, as have um, most pupil barristers who've who faced this situation. But I could never have imagined that um, the last time I, mm-hmm. I saw him, um, I was seeing him again, um, for yeah. quite so long. So it's been it's been challenging, but um, I think he still had the opportunity to enjoy a kind of varied. Um, an, an interesting pupilage, and as I say, he's now he's now doing his own work. Second six, yeah, six. of course. So, a question that many people will want to know the answer to, Sahar, um, in regards to pupilage at DWF is: what is it? What is the what's the one thing if you could put down to one attribute? What would it be that you are looking for at DWF advocacy for a pupil? Yeah. One thing is what were the main? What were the, Okay, let's limit to three main things that you think, um, because this is a question that I'm incorporating into um, our agenda as well. That was uh, directly sent to me um, on LinkedIn, um, and the question says, "What's the one thing that um, people at DWF are looking for in terms of pupilage?" But let's give three just to um, give a, a, a bit more of a fuller approach. I think the the thing that sort of matters most because by the time somebody is mm-hmm. interviewing for us with people, which is mm-hmm. the same anywhere, mm-hmm. frankly, they will have satisfied um, the marking criteria and therefore at least one or two members mm-hmm. of the panel, they deserve to yeah. be in the room. That's one of the things that I think applicants yeah. often forget. By the time you're invited mm-hmm. for interview, on paper, an assessment has yes. been made that you have all the mm-hmm. right attributes. You're not lucky yeah. to be there. You're not fortunate to be there. You're there yeah. on merit and okay. merit room. And when you walk through the door, then you've got to you've got to kind yeah. of own it. So, I think 
one of the the most important things from my perspective is that the person is mm-hmm. a human being and that sounds ridiculous but i don't want someone um who is you know academically outstanding mm-hmm. and a completely brilliant mm-hmm. lawyer in every way mm-hmm. exceptional but has absolutely no functioning personality mm-hmm. well ultimately you still have to work yeah. with clients and you know taking Lyle, Lyle as an example there have been occasions where I've asked him um, prior to, to COVID um, to meet with clients mm-hmm. someone who's capable of doing that who has mm-hmm. the personality to do that yeah. and is comfortable doing that yeah. um, and fundamentally I have to work with the person or whoever their pupil supervisor is has to work with them so yeah. they need to be a human being mm-hmm. um, and that's that's really really important mm-hmm. um, then I think the the second sort of aspect for me mm-hmm. uh, in my line of work is is commercial awareness mm-hmm. commercial awareness of course is a kind of umbrella term which is very topical um, but for me really what commercial awareness means is that the person understands on a base level mm-hmm. what makes a law firm like ours um, what makes a legal business like ours tick what are the sorts of metrics that mean um, you will be successful Mm -hmm. how do companies measure their own success yeah how can we enhance that or Mm -hmm. as lawyers dealing with litigation or disputes yeah how are we able to protect that or bring that yeah. Because by and large, when um, a client is facing a dispute or bringing, yeah. bringing one mm-hmm. resolution, mm-hmm. it's almost always about, um, well, it's almost always about rights and remedies, but mm-hmm. it's almost always about money. Yeah. Uh, and finding out um, why that money is important, why they're <laughs> entitled to it, how they can protect it, and understanding mm-hmm. how best um, to protect that. Yeah. you go into it with that mindset and you can recognize that and you can see patterns around that yeah you would understand um in a wider way that every aspect of our relationships with clients and how we conduct ourselves as a business is mm-hmm. in commercial awareness yeah definitely so that aspect is obviously very important uh and i think the final aspect which is no less important is about a a person's ethical approach to things yeah it's obviously something that comes up in interviews sometimes people are given ethical scenarios yeah definitely artificial constructs which Mm -hmm. rarely actually occur Mm -hmm. but day to day you need to be sure that the person you're dealing with is trustworthy yeah. It's one of the reasons why dishonesty um, is an offence that the BSB treats um, as incredibly serious, such yeah. that the starting point for a finding of dishonesty is to mm-hmm. be blood. Mm-hmm. So being somebody who conducts themselves ethically, who is honest, is 
very, very important from my perspective mm-hmm. because I have to deal with the individual, mm-hmm. but also Definitely. for them to have a sustainable future as a practitioner. Mm-hmm. They need to be able to conduct themselves mm-hmm. openly, honestly, um, and be able to adhere to those sorts of standards. Yeah. So, although um, inevitably, when I actually sit down and think about it, I'll probably formulate these points differently. I think being being a human being um, is, is something which is incredibly, incredibly important. Mm-hmm. And that kind of is the thread that, that runs through all three of those things. But being a human being, commercial awareness, yeah, um, and, and dealing with things ethically, those three are, are probably at the forefront of my mind when we're interviewing people. Yeah, and I think I think that's that's definitely something I can agree on as well. You just you need something more than just um, academics, don't you? So how you need to be able to get on with the person. You need to have some sort of rapport with the person, um, as well as the academics to back that. So somebody who walks the walk and also talks the talk as well as that. So I think what we'll do, Sahar, is we'll um, we'll tag a little um, legal cheek. Have done a very interesting and uh, informative um article on commercial awareness and we'll tag that onto the bottom of um this post when we do put it out there as well just for the people to get to grips and understand um why commercial awareness is it it's um it's imperative really isn't it in uh, in this field and i think that also touches on some of the um the topics of discussion, guys, that we were going to discuss so has um nailed part three of this um uh, uh, of this podcast I mean, I mean, I just, I just, <laughs> with yeah. commercial awareness it, it it's such an umbrella term yeah it, it's very difficult to define and i know you know people are constantly trying to understand it and they are to some extent, it's a bit like nailing jelly to the wall because it, yeah it's difficult to define but from from my perspective because i get asked by solicitors and barristers alike yeah. um to me um if I was asked it in an interview, particularly um, mm-hmm. at the law firm, mm-hmm. it would be about saying to the panel or saying to the individual asking the question, I understand. We were just discussing the importance of uh, commercial awareness and the, it being an umbrella topic. So um, I do crack on with that. Sorry about that. That's all right. Um, I was just saying it, it's, it, it is one of those things that is, is an umbrella term that's very difficult to define um but when people ask me it's often aspiring solicitors as well as barristers and i think what you've got to try and do is put yourself in the shoes of the person who's asking you that question Mm -hmm. um particularly if it's you know the the partner of the law firm asking you um, a question about commercial awareness Mm -hmm. i would be inclined to almost answer it from their perspective and talk to them about how you can appreciate that yeah. the assessment they are making is not just on the qualities that you possess and whether you're a cultural fit, yeah. but also on what their return on investment is going to be like um, for somebody with your credentials. Mm-hmm. And when they're finished doing all these interviews today, when they go back to their desk and the various matters that they've got to deal with for their clients, they've got to consider at every single point whether they're adding value for their clients Mm-hmm. Um, and how best to protect their clients' interests, which boils mm-hmm. down to financials. And mm-hmm. again, you know, the, the metrics that they use to assess 
whether or not they've had a good year as an individual lawyer, mm-hmm. um, as a team of lawyers, as a yeah. firm of lawyers, as a yeah. business. Those things demonstrate commercial awareness. So mm-hmm. things like gross margin, understanding yeah. whether or not certain streams of work are profitable. Mm-hmm. Those are the types of things that if I heard somebody at entry level or someone applying for an entry level position talking about, I would yeah. be extremely impressed Yeah, because that tells me that you have really researched beyond simply statistics that are available on the website yeah. and understood how we classify ourselves as having had a good year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So it goes beyond the um, just a quick Google search. It goes beyond just being familiar with what commercial awareness is. It goes deeper than that and into the intricacies of actually the figures which um, which matter to keep uh, firms and chambers moving along. Is that right? Isn't that right, Sarah? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, those those figures are are available um, in mm-hmm. the context of um, of law firms, but. Yeah. You know, you've got to you've got to understand that um, even in chambers, whether where you're dealing with independent practitioners, mm-hmm. they are obviously going to be people who have to be commercially aware. They have to be commercially aware within the confines, of course, of things like the the cab rank principles. Yeah, they have yeah. to be commercially aware about how their practice is developing because if they aren't. Um, and I'm talking obviously now in a sort of civil, civil commercial context as opposed to necessarily publicly funded work. Yeah. If they're not commercially aware about how their practice is developing, mm-hmm. then it won't develop full stop. Mm-hmm. So they have to be looking at, um, you know, what's being charged, how it's being charged, whether they're adding value for clients and then delivering for those clients mm-hmm. so that clients will then look at them as somebody who adds value and they will look at them as someone who, when they're in the midst of a dispute, is their go-to person to protect them and to protect their interests. Yeah, so it's what it's about what you can bring to the set of chambers, isn't it? What's going to add value, and that's um, that's one of the things that um, you mentioned in the top three of being commercially aware. I think that's um, uh, something that many people will listen to, and once they hear this, will possibly um, direct their attention to more being more commercially aware in in whichever legally um sector side this find themselves and whether it be the solicitor role or the bar role i think commercial awareness works for both doesn't it yeah absolutely but it, it, it is heavily intertwined with the first thing i identified which is being a human being human being yeah if you definitely want to actually have a conversation with people if you want yeah. them to like you you need to have something to you something about you that yeah it's fundamentally and basically engaging mm-hmm. beyond that once you've begun the engagement mm-hmm. then of course when it comes to business they want to know that you understand uh, and speak their language that you understand what's important to them and you mm-hmm. understand how to protect that yeah. clients want to know um that you're likable and once you've got over that then that you can really do what needs to be done for them mm-hmm. definitely um, and and those two things um, are really really important. Yes. Along with what I also said, which is someone who's um, conducting themselves in an ethical way. Yeah. So the top three things there, guys, who are listening, um, although these work in conjunction and separately as well, you need to have a personality. You need to be a human being. 
being commercially aware and having a um, an ethical side to you, which um, per- perseveres and prevails over every- everything that you do in terms of your work. Now, Sahar, we got a lot of engagement on LinkedIn. I got tons of questions. I think I got over a dozen questions. Um, Farine also got a few questions put to her, and I'm sure um, your comment section on your post was filled with questions. Now, this is the final part of this podcast, uh, and we've got a few random questions, some of which you are aware about and some of which you are not. There's only two that you're not aware about, but uh, I'm going to start off with... um, uh, the first question, which was sent to me, um, it, it was actually sent to me by a BPTC student studying in uh, University of West England. So, so he says, what is this, what is Saha's biggest achievement and most difficult challenge to date? Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's a tough one um, because you know, I, I don't, I, I don't tend to dwell too much on, um, on the achievements. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose the transition finished my criminal pupillage and I decided I wanted to, to diversify my practice. I was trying to apply to other sets of chambers, um, commercial sets, for mm-hmm. example, and it dawned on me very quickly that actually it's not easy to do that at all. You might think once you're qualified as a barrister, you can then really quite easily diversify yeah. your practice but it's not it's not easy to mm-hmm. do at all um so i started doing general civil work and then at dwf for um a couple of years i was doing general civil work before i really broke into um initially sort of domestic commercial mm-hmm. chancery work and then ultimately specializing in international arbitration which is what mm-hmm. i had targeted um that was a big journey and a big achievement, which is um, not very common for people to do, and one of which mm-hmm. I'm proud. But alongside that, then setting up the structure and the business that we yeah. talked about um, to now, you know, our, our accounts for last year show revenue um, of 1.9 million. So I can wow. say <laughs> it's a multi million yeah. business, but we're pretty close to being a multi million yeah, business. Yeah, that's a massive achievement. And, um, that's that's a significant achievement. Yeah, I bet, I bet, I bet that's something to be proud of, Sahar. Your hard work and everybody involved at DWF Advocacy. I think when I first heard about DWF Advocacy, Sahar, I think it was yourself and was it Jonathan Robinshaw? Is that his name? Is that his surname? I think yeah. you were the yeah. only two individuals that were steering that ship at the time. So that was back in 2018, I believe, when I was actually sat in a qualifying session at Middle Temple and you'd put a post up with the wig um, just above the DWF logo. And um, there was a little poem um, I remember you posted out on LinkedIn and that was when uh, um, this whole, this whole venture started, didn't it? So definitely something to be um, proud of, Sahar. Um, your achievements haven't gone unnoticed and it's, um, it's, 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 it's the courage and the determination that you've had to succeed. But um, moving on to the second question. Yeah, was that? That was that was the only question. Was it was achievement, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Uh, oh, that? right. Yeah, yeah. No, there was. There was a two part. Um, most difficult challenge. Um, I think you addressed that early on. No, did you not? Questions are. Uh, well, we still got you. Um, is the most embarrassing moment if you've had one? Yeah, I think it would be it would be difficult to choose one because there's inevitably <laughs> so many. Um, 
the one one that I I often tell um, mentees about, uh, certainly tell my own pupils mm. about, because you will always make mistakes, particularly during mm. pupilage. On, I think it was the second mm. day of my pupilage, um, I misplaced um, a brief. Um, I left it on a train, and um, I had this kind of horrific moment about 20 seconds after disembarking mm. from the train where I realized did a complete 180 mm. but you know that that beeping sound the doors closed the doors yeah on the door hoping they'd stop the train or possibly even arrest yeah. me but it didn't, it didn't, oh, didn't wow. happen wow. Um, it was the set the second day of my pupilage and I was the reason I got off the train was to meet my my pupil supervisor at court. Wow. Um, so it, it wasn't the brief for that day, but obviously it was um, a brief for um, another day, and it was a very very difficult moment where my immediate reaction was actually to call somebody else who I knew very mm-hmm. well at the time who had just taken tenancy mm-hmm. at another set and asked them, uh, and their response was, you know just make sure you make sure you get mm-hmm. it back um don't worry if you're late for court uh, maybe don't answer your phone just make sure you get it back and say that you were late um for court um but I, I felt I probably had to tell my supervisor so I rang them and told them they were very calm about it but said right you make sure you go and you go and <laughs> well, well, well let's hope it doesn't happen again yeah. so well uh, especially when, when you're not on one of them international flights as well, that would be uh, significantly worse. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, don't, I don't, I don't often carry papers anymore. Most um, and everything is in yeah. encrypted. But the reason that story is is so kind of important is because it it was so mortifying mm. and it was so impossible, mm-hmm. and it happened so early on. I was so humiliated and ashamed. I had no mm. one to blame mm. myself. Yeah, but. You, know, you pick yourself yeah. up and you continue. Of course, um, you you apologize. You do the yeah. right thing. And yeah, of course, it. of course. So very few people will ever experience anything quite yeah. so bad. <laughs> right well, let's um, let's hope we've nipped it in the bud for um, losing briefs, Asaha. Um, now moving yeah. on to a, a third question that you've um, you've not seen. Um, this is one that I cherry picked from. Um, uh, somebody who posted it in your comment section um, and this asks um, what advice would you give to somebody who has a 2-2 undergraduate and wants to be a barrister well I think the, the starting point is to assess your overall mm-hmm. profile um, a 2-2 is not a death mm-hmm. sentence for um, a career mm-hmm. at the bar it is going to be a mm-hmm. handicap. There's no way around that. Um, most sets of chambers will specifically say that they're looking for two one yeah, or higher. So I think the first thing is to look at your overall mm-hmm. profile. And if, for example, you know you have strong academic achievement mm-hmm. throughout your background, and mm-hmm. then, for example, you, you go do the bar course and you excel at that, you can identify it as yeah. an anomaly and you can really explain that and push it and talk about what you, you've mm-hmm. learned as a result of that. Mm-hmm. 
I think you also have to, with a 2-2, recognising, as I said, that it's mm-hmm. a handicap, you will need to make sure you push yourself mercilessly into extracurricular yeah, activities. So that, so that you're really nailing those, but also showing that you've got aptitude mm-hmm. for it. It's not enough to then mm-hmm. do them, because as, um, as everybody does them, You've got to really try and excel at the mooting, the debating, yeah. the bono, yeah. all of those. Um, and you know, people with um, people with a two-two often look at it as well. I think the solution is to do a mm. masters. I struggle with that because I don't necessarily see that that adds much, um, especially when you know people do a masters that's focused on something which is not strictly relevant to what they're then mm. applying for. Um, a master's is something which um, people with a 2-2 often use as a way of what I've uh, talked about previously. I was just sort of demonstrating that actually that achievement is yeah. an anomaly. Um, and if you're going to do that, it's a very expensive mm-hmm, way to do definitely. it. Um, it may not necessarily add yeah. that much. So overall, the advice to someone with a 2-2 is to kind of begin looking at their application mm-hmm. holistically um, and trying to work out whether or not they think they can properly um, and successfully manage their way through um, what will be a very difficult uh, recruitment process. It can yeah. be done. It mm-hmm. has been done. Um, people that do it tend to, in my experience, have something else on mm-hmm. their CV. Often it's people, um, and it may just be that these are the people that I've come across, but often people with a 2-2 who have gone on to pupillage and mm-hmm. practice, um, had other careers yeah. and elsewhere. So I'm not sure how useful that um, is as an answer, but I think that probably... Yeah, no, I think it's, it's, it's a very reasonable answer, so it makes sense to try and somewhat level the playing field in terms of your academics and doing extracurricular activities, getting involved in the mooting, the debating, and... Um, um, especially if you're going to get onto the bar course, you need to make sure that you excel on the bar course and um, not just come out with a competent. You need to try and um, uh, try and surpass any expectations that you have, which may have been set um, because of your two-two. So um, I think that's something that people will listen to, and if there are any people out there, will probably take that on board as well. Um, but now moving on to the final question um, today, Sahar, and I know this podcast has. Um, it's been it's very deep in conversation and we've discussed a lot. But just to round up now, Sahar, there's a question which was put by um, uh, the same individual. And I thought it was um, quite an interesting question because I'd like to know the answer to this as well. Um, so the question reads, how much of your time is spent drafting as opposed to um, undertaking advocacy as a director? Well, I mean, that that's kind of led by the practice area mm. that I'm in. Um, so international arbitration is often, um, depending on which area mm. involved, document um, and can be subject to the rules and what the parties have agreed, multiple exchanges of pleadings throughout yeah. the process. Um, actual advocacy, mm. again, you know, you can imagine in, in complex yeah. cases, um, where the claims span hundreds of millions of dollars and counterclaims of similar mm. values. 
parties are engaged in correspondence and pleadings um, a lot of the time, which is interspersed with the occasional hearing before a tribunal to discuss a specific mm -hmm. issue, or for example, um, if limitation has been set down as a preliminary issue, okay. things like that. Okay. Um, so I think for me, it's probably something like 80% papers, 20% okay. advocacy, which is interesting. We've kind of gone full circle from what I was talking about mm -hmm. in the beginning when I was saying criminal, yeah. criminal practitioners and yeah, yeah, work definitely. in court probably 80% of the time and 20% of the time mm -hmm, drafting. Um, but, but for other people within the business who don't do the type of work yeah. that I do, who have um, a more broad sort of <clears throat> civil practice, yeah. Um, one of our barristers who does um, predominantly civil and chancery mm -hmm. work, uh, for example, you know, these people will be probably more um, 70, 80% mm -hmm. um, advocacy work and 20, 30%. Yeah, okay. So it varies, doesn't it, dependent upon the case that you're dealing with and what's required of you in that moment of time. So um, there we have it, Sahar. Um, they were the questions that we had from um uh, people on linkedin and social media of course we apologize that we're not able to get all of the questions out there but the ones that we have picked um have been the ones which we cherry picked and thought would um allow some um informative advice to um students um and as well as a little insight into what uh yourself and uh your your whole ship at dwf do on a daily basis so we've discussed today Saha, a number of things um a little intro to you, your background, pupils at DWF, commercial awareness, um, the black and ethnic minority group um, topic as well has come up. Um, we've got more a post-personal touch to who you are. And we're so grateful to have you on this podcast, Sahar. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Um, I'm hoping that our paths do cross again in the future. And we hope to keep you on board at Law Simplified as well. So, like I said at the start of this conversation and the start of this podcast, thank you very much for spending your time. I know we've stretched a little over the time limit, but um, I'm sure people will be grateful and appreciative of the time that you spent to hustle. Thank you very much. As I said, thank you very much for having me. Um, and I'm a big supporter of what, uh, what you guys are trying mm -hmm. to achieve with it all simplified. Um, big, big, big fan of the work. So keep it yeah. up. And thank you very much. For thank me. you very much, Sahar. Now, quickly, guys, before we go, um, please do keep um, up to date with everything that's going on on LinkedIn. We'll be posted, posting out more news, more information, and more podcasts to come in the next couple of weeks. Um, the website, just for reference, is www.law-simplified.co.uk. I must stress the hyphen because Sahar, so many people forget that. And even we've forgotten that in, in uh, recent times as well. So thank you very much for listening, guys. Sahar, again, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks.